Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Back once again here on the GM Shuffle. Thank you so much to have all of you with us. And honestly, there's a lot of excitement out there, not only in the world of football, but also off the field. And Mike and I are going to get into all of that. But first and foremost, it's one thing to say the Tennessee Titans beat the New England Patriots, Mike. I think you and I were like, okay, that could happen. A little surprising, but it could happen, and it did. But to knock off the Baltimore Ravens the way they did so is nothing short of shocking. 28-12, to the Titans dominate Baltimore. The Ravens had won 12 straight games. Lamar Jackson looked unstoppable. And there's lots of different ways to look at this, but I want to start with this. And this is something we've talked about a lot here on the GM Shuffle, which is that numbers can be misleading. You look at Lamar Jackson's numbers, 31 of 59 for 365, 20 carries for 143. Of course, 31 of 59, not a good completion percentage, but 365 passing, 143 rushing. Oh my God, they must have done great. No, when you put up 12 points, those are the numbers that matter most. And the Titans, phenomenal job keeping Baltimore out of the end zone. Yeah, you know, I think when you study these playoff games, and these playoff games are big for Al Davis. I mean, he lived for them, but he also lived to evaluate them because obviously he was trying to figure out which way his team needed to go. And, you know, and I've gotten a lot of people say, well, you said a running game can't win a playoff game. Well, you know, look, I think Derrick Henry's a unique back. I think Barry Sanders was a unique back. I think Derrick Henry's hard to tackle later in the season, probably miscalculated that. But I think when you really break this game down, the Ravens should probably put a sign in their team offensive meeting room that says, we shall not throw the ball more than 35 times ever in a game. Like, the thing that costs you these games is when you become something you're not. You know, Pacino can obviously act in any role, but there's some roles that guys don't belong in, right? You know, and I think the Baltimore Ravens took on a personality that that's not who they are. And let's just go through it a little bit, right? So they start the game off, and they and they turn the ball over. Andrews has that. So they move the ball down the field, and Baltimore plays really good defense. Earl Thomas blitzes off the edge, and they sack Ryan Tannehill for a sack. Now it's third and goal from the 16 or something like that. And Tannehill makes an incredible throw, right? He makes an incredible throw, and Smith makes an even more incredible catch. And so they score seven points. And so now you're down 7 nothing, And at that moment, A.D., I think panic set into the Ravens. I think they got panicked. I think all of a sudden they didn't know what to do. They start throwing it on every play. And then panic sets in. So they, the red zone conversion, Tennessee. Then we got a fourth and one at midfield or something like that, the 46, right? And naturally Baltimore goes for it. And what have we talked about the whole time on, on this podcast? That third and short are going to determine these playoff games. It's gospel, right? They don't get the fourth down. Next play, touchdown pass, you're down 14 and nothing. And all of a sudden, panic, panic said it. So now we're panic squared. And I think that panic squared is why the Ravens are watching this thing as well as the Titans have played. But the Ravens played outside of who they really are. And I'm with you on that. I think that people are going to say, you know, is it more the Titans being better than we realize or the Ravens playing down? Well, of course, the answer is a little bit of both. But I think more than anything, it's what you alluded to. Baltimore did not play their best. Okay? You don't win 12 straight games. You're not the prohibitive favorite. You don't look that sloppy all over the place. And um, 
I mean, it's 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 a huge misstep by Baltimore that they weren't able to get this done. We, we talked about the fact Mike Wink Martindale is getting consideration for a head coach out there, how strong their defense was, the fact Greg Rowan's being lauded as an offensive coordinator. They were unwilling to make adjustments and unwilling to do those, and I think that's what kills you. Listen, you get into early holes, and we'll talk with the Chiefs in just a second. That was a serious hole there. 24-0, Casey was down. They come rolling back, steady the ship. Andy Reid doesn't panic. Let's make some moves. Special teams is costing us. Now special teams bounces back, so on and so forth. In the case of Baltimore, what you're referring to, that panic, that and, and so times determines who will be successful in the playoffs because you got to have that poise, you have that composure. And the other side of it for the Titans, Derrick Henry, unstoppable. They put eight in the box, didn't matter. This is why this guy was the NFL rushing leader. He was great. Yeah, nobody could tackle him, right? I mean, like, look, and so let's go through it. So now, you know, they throw 22 passes, the Ravens, in the first half. That ain't who they are. Lamar Jackson's their leading rusher with nine carries. That ain't who they are, right? And so when you try to be something you're not, you can't execute the game plan that way. And the narrative coming out of this game is going to be, well, see, we told you Lamar Jackson's really not a quarterback. No, stop. Like, if you want to go down that road, go down that road. The guy's going to win MVP. Great. If you want to go down that road, it's just because you have confirmation bias about him coming out in the draft. The reality is this one falls on the Baltimore coaching staff in terms of their panic. They have to go into games, and what we learn from this game more than anything is Baltimore can't play left-handed. Baltimore can't play from behind, and Baltimore can't play when they try to feature the run at passing game. Baltimore is a one-dimensional team that's outstanding at what they do. They're great at what they do, but sometimes in the playoffs, you're forced to play outside of who you really are. And Baltimore didn't do it. And I think Harbaugh has to take some responsibility for this because, A, he didn't coach his team up and say, fellas, we might be down in the first quarter 14-0. No panic. Look, we went to New England and we're up 14-0. They didn't panic. They didn't change who they were. Baltimore, when I'm watching the game, I'm getting the sense that every first down they think is going to be worth two touchdowns. There was a sense that it was not, as Springsteen eloquently says, sometimes I can't tell my courage from my desperation. It was never about being courageous. It always looked desperate to me. I think as a fan, I think you've got to determine that, right? Is this team desperate or are they courageous, right? I think Seattle half the time is always courageous. It looks desperate, but it's always courageous. But the reality here is, so now it's 14 to 6 at the half. You get the ball to come out. You drive all the way down the field. And once again, we have fourth and inches. Now, I'm not suggesting you kick a field goal, but God damn, I'm suggesting you run a better play than somewhere sideways where your offensive line gets knocked back, right? Like at some point, you've got one of the best players in the world. Spread the court. Like who could stop Allen Iverson from getting to the rim? The answer is nobody. Who could stop Lamar Jackson from getting an inch if the field spread out? Right? Like, who could stop them? Oh, that's what I said. That's the other part of it, too. You mentioned those fourth and inches. Line play. Line play is so critical come playoff time. The Ravens were getting pushed around, literally getting bullied, whether it was on offense trying to get those short yardage situations, the Titans D-line would get enormous pressure and get in the backfield, or even more embarrassingly, the way the Titans O-line would keep the Baltimore defense at bay. They just couldn't get enough pressure on Ryan Tannehill, and that's what we've learned with Tannehill. You give him time, he's going to pick you apart. Yeah, I mean, Tannehill's the new version of Bob Greasy, right? I mean, Derrick Henry is Larry Zonka. Uh, you know, they don't have the no-name defense, right? I mean, Tennessee's, I think Dean Peace didn't get enough credit on the broadcast for how good of a job he did, even though he gave up a ton of yards. He really did a great job of handling this team and making them play panicked. I mean, the defense makes you play panicked, right? They make you play panic, and Baltimore was panicked the entire game, and it never stopped. It never stopped. And the, and the play of the game really is you don't get that fourth and inches. 
Now they come back out. They run the ball two plays in a row. They get it to third and one. They have third and one. And Matt Judon's in the backfield for a two-yard loss. And Henry flicks him off like he's like some little kid. And he goes 80 yards. The ball's first and goal with the four. That's the game. They Every time they didn't get it on fourth down, the Titans answered with seven points. Yeah, and, and you look at the numbers overall. But by the way, Derrick Henry, 195 rushing yards, Mike. So it's just insane to think how what, what an animal he was. But like you said, it ends up being those little moments. And for Baltimore, by the way, anybody who's criticizing Lamar Jackson, back to your point, guy's 23 years old. He's going to be the MVP of the league. He had an unbelievable season. It's one game. And where was his support? Like where? He, where was Baltimore's running game? Right? Obviously, that that's an issue as well. No doubt. And and look, I mean, look, did he play good? No, he did not play good. But to me, if I'm John Harbaugh in their offensive staff meeting room, I'm putting a big fucking sign up and saying, we are not throwing the ball 35 times or more. And I don't give a shit what the defense does, because that ain't who we are. How we got these wins, how we dominated people is because we were able to outman a side, we were able to run the football effectively, and we were able to throw play-action passes. That's who we are. And if we have to go out and play from behind, fellas, then we got to do something different. And that's the only way they can go into the offseason. If they don't have that mentality about how they're going to handle this, they're going to make mistakes because they can't play left-handed. I mean, look, I love Lamar. I love Lamar more than anybody. I think he's a great player. But I would be the first guy to say he can't throw it 35 more times. It's not going to be productive for us. We're going to lose games if he does that. We need to utilize his skill. It would be like saying – Okay, I mean, obviously I'm a diehard, and I, I need to go to rehab for it, but I admit it. You know, it would be like for the 76ers being a fan. I, I certainly need to go to rehab, but it would be like <laughs> saying Ben Simmons should shoot 25 threes a game. Now, I agree Ben Simmons should shoot two or three a game, but I don't want him shooting 25 threes a game. Like, I want Ben Simmons to be Ben Simmons. I want him to drive to the rim. I want him to kick and dish. I want him to play great. De- I want him to do that. That's Lamar Jackson. Same thing. I want Lamar Jackson to do. And when you get players and you play them outside their role, you deserve to lose. And Baltimore has no one to blame but themselves. They fucking panicked, and no one's going to tell me different. Since it was the second time you've mentioned the Sixers, I do want to ask you your thoughts on the nickname of Joel Embiid, Joel WebMD. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, Philadelphia is such a blue-collar, hardworking town. This guy has him mesmerized. He's like Svengali here. You know, he barely can run up and down the court. He's never great shape, right? But everybody says he's a great player, although when Clint Cabela scores 30 on him, nobody mentions that he was guarding Cabela, right? <laughs> I have a Hall of Fame basketball player text me, and I, I bitch back and forth to him about it all the time. The reality of it is, is I don't understand why people don't – they blame poor Brett Brown more than they blame NBA. If, if you have a great player, and he's supposed to be the most dominant player in the history of the sport – you know, then he should be able to beat the shitty teams. He shouldn't go to Orlando and lose. He shouldn't go to Miami and turn the ball over twice. Not that I'm paying attention. So anyway, it's my frustration. Like, it's so painful. But that dovetails perfectly with our point, though, about great players. Like you said, Lamar Jackson should be able to overcome. Joel Embiid should be able to come. Patrick Mahomes overcame. This is one of the most incredible things you'll ever see if you're a football fan. The Chiefs are down. They overcome a 21-plus point deficit at the end of the first quarter. First team to do that in football since the Patriots back in 2011. But in terms of playoff comebacks, down 24 nothing. I mean, it's not Frank Reich and the Bills, Mike, back in 1992, but still, it's tied for the fourth greatest comeback ever. And as Tony Romo said in the broadcast, this isn't just a comeback in the game. This is a comeback in a quarter. Like, you had these awful miscues early. And you and I have talked about the special teams as that underrated facet of the game. Not enough people pay attention to it. And what happens? Chiefs have a muff punt. They get a block. 
block kick. All of a sudden, boom, Texans, great field position. They take advantage. Oh, my God, Arrowhead's rocking. Are we going to see another upset? Every football fan wanted to see Lamar and Mahomes, and they're going, oh, gee, are you kidding? We're going to see an AFC South matchup for the AFC Championship game? Come on. Do you, do you follow Twitter during the game? It's hilarious. I mean, when it was 17 to nothing, people were like, oh, this is going to be the worst conference championship game, Tennessee and Houston. This is going to be, I mean, I mean, it's just like, it's unbelievable. The, the, the emotional, like, I get off Twitter during the games. Some of the things people are saying on there are so wrong. And then you have these people that are second guessing the play calls. Well, you know, they ran it first down and 11 personnel and they, they can't do this. Like, seriously, okay, stop. Okay, do you really understand what, who is in the 11? Like these people that say, well, they're in 12 personnel. Like, you know, 12 personnel when it's Hernandez and Gronk is a lot different than 12 personnel with Jimmy Graham and somebody else. Or, you know, with Jared Cook and Will. And, you know, it's like 12 has to be defined by who the players are, not by the number, right? Which it cracks me up. So I, I stay off of it. But I think as a football fan, if you love football as much as I do, is that game Sunday was the perfect example, and I wish Roma would have talked about it. This is the perfect example of a team that has a big lead, but they ain't in control. They were never in control. So let's break it down. They get the block punt. They go down the field. Kansas City blows the coverage. They don't. They st- touchdown. Okay, mistake. Kansas City block punt. Mistake. Kansas City drop passes. Mistake. Kansas City. Right. So the next thing you know, they're making all these mistakes in the first quarter. None of them that Houston are forcing. They're not. I mean, maybe the Tyreek Hill on the over route that he got hit and he dropped it. Maybe that was the one they forced. But there's none of these plays that they're forcing. Now it's 24 to nothing. And who's to blame? Only Kansas City. It wasn't that anything really Houston controlled the game about. And then all of a sudden it starts. And people are like on Twitter, well, Bill O'Brien should have gone for the field goal. Shouldn't have gone for the field goal. He should have gone for it. And then going for the fake punts, the dumb, it turned the game around. Okay, seriously, it turned the game around. They scored 51 fucking points. The fake punt proves that he was right to go for it because he was going to need 52 to win the game. Well, here was my point, Mike. And that's what I tweeted. Again, to your point about Twitter, that the issue to me, like I'll send an occasional tweet, but you're right. The annoying thing is in seeing all the responses because then you go, gee, do I really have to get into a stupid conversation with some nimrod about this? Like, let me just tweet and I can move on. But let's discuss this. Because you're right. People are now saying this changed the game. Bill O'Brien coaching gaff is like Bill Buckner. I'm like, hang on a second. The, and, and, and the point they're making is this, Mike. They're saying if you didn't go for it on fourth down when you're at the 11-yard line, you kick the field goal, why are you going for it now? And my point is, listen, you clearly saw Bill O'Brien was pissed about something. He didn't like the... Um, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He thought it was a first down. So he sent a group out there. And when he found that it was fourth and one, he thought, I'm not going to turn down the points. Like, okay, it's easy for you to sit on your couch in Des Moines and fart in the same cushion for the same amount of years like Uncle Junior was <laughs> and say he should go for it, right? But, like, he's trying to collect as many points. He What his goal was, I'm going to have 12 possessions, 13. How many I have? I need points on every possession. I need points. Now, if it's the fourth quarter, I got to go for it. But I need points on every possession. And I'm going to need to gain a possession. I mean, I mean, they started the broadcast off by saying that the Texans are going to need to gain a possession. Like, did anybody actually think that Houston was in control of that game when they went for the fake punt? Of course they weren't. All it did was it gave Kansas City better field position. But Kansas City was getting better field position anyway. They're going to throw one throw to Kelsey, and they're going to have better field. It was like people bitched about Belichick going for it on fourth and inches against Indianapolis. Like, field position when Peyton was rolling didn't matter. It didn't matter. He would throw one pass to Dallas Clark, one pass to Marvin Harrison. Next thing you know, the ball's right there. Like, seriously. Oh, it turned the momentum of the game. No. What turned the momentum in the game is is they can't cover them. 
That's what turned the momentum in the game. Houston can't cover Kansas City's receivers. Right. And to your point about momentum turning, well, listen, I, here's why I like the play because this is what happens. People go, oh my God, what a terrible play call when it doesn't work out the way you want. No, sometimes the play call I like, it's just a guy makes a play. Meaning the fake punt, I think in a vacuum, is it cool because nobody expected it? And like you said, you're up 21 nothing or 24 nothing. O'Brien's probably pissed. They didn't get that first down, so well, screw it. I'll get a first down here. The element of surprise, so on and so forth. What happened? Sorensen made a great play. Sometimes guys make great plays. People look at the Super Bowl and go, how the hell did Marshall Lynch not run? Malcolm Butler made a great play. He jumped the route. Sometimes that happens right? It doesn't mean the play calls bad. It means that a player made a great play. That's right. And, and you know, if you were calling the play, it would be, oh, shit, we had it, but we didn't. You know, I mean, Buffalo thinks they had a screen. They had a toss-crack play against Houston. They would have got the ball down to the 20. They would have won that game. It didn't happen, right? Nobody's talked about that play, but it didn't happen. It, it, it's the same thing here. I mean, just because you don't get it doesn't mean that it's a bad call. Look, I think CBS did a poor job of showing the replay. What was going on, and I thought it was a fake from my chair in New Jersey because I kept seeing Reed moving back and forth, right to left, right to left, right to left. And he usually sets himself before he snaps, and you could see Sorensen knew it was coming, right? And you got to ask yourself the question, if you want to critique the play, if you want to critique the play, if all these geniuses on their couch at Twitter want to critique the play, then the, here's the critique. Reed obviously wasn't good enough athletically to make Sorensen miss because they were never blocking Sorensen on the play. They were counting on Reed to make Sorensen miss. Okay. And so if you want to bitch at Bill O'Brien saying he's a fit, I mean, like Bill O'Brien doesn't get a first down. I mean, the Houston Mafia is out to fire his poor ass immediately, even though they've won four straight AFC South titles or whatever they've won, right? I mean, they just come right out and get him because they all think he can't coach. So, I mean, if you want to critique him, say, Bill, did you really think Eric Reed could make Sorensen miss? And I bet you Bill would say, yeah, we kind of thought he would. I mean, I'm sure Brad Seeley said to himself, I think you can win. You got to win this one. Now, if that would have been Austin Eckular in the backfield, because he's the personal protector sometimes on the Chargers, or if it would have been Taysom Hill, he would have made a miss. Like, that would have been a different story. Reed just didn't do it. So if you want to blame the play, then blame that. Let's get to a guy who deserves nothing but kudos, and that would be Patrick Mahomes. And listen, as a football fan, Mike, I wanted to see Lamar Mahomes go toe-to-toe. I'm not going to get that. And all due respect to uh, Ryan Daniel and Deshaun Watson, at least I'm happy Mahomes is in there because Mahomes stepped it up. These numbers, and again, it goes back to not panicking and composure and being a leader. You talk so much about culture in a locker room. Imagine the culture of the Kansas City Chiefs. Andy Reid never gets frazzled, and Patrick Mahomes says, no problem, guys. 24 nothing, we got this. This is one of the most electrifying offenses in football history. We're going to be fine. Think about this stat. He's the first player since 1950, 300 or more passing yards, five or more passing touchdowns, 50 or more rushing yards, and perhaps most important in a playoff game, zero interceptions. He was incredible. Yeah, I mean, and look, they had no pressure on the guy. Like, I mean, Mitchell Schwartz did a good job blocking him, but J.J. Watt was exhausted. You could see him huffing and puffing. He didn't look like he was in great shape. He probably isn't because he's coming back off that injury. And you know what happens when guys come back off the injury. They don't have really time to get in great cardiovascular shape, and he wasn't. That's fair. You know, that doesn't mean it's his fault. It's just that's what it is. He probably played way more plays than he should have played, which is when you're desperate like they were. But the reality here is they put no pressure on Mahomes. I mean, if if you want to bitch at anything, it was like Rack thought he could cover him, and he can't. And, and they they exploited the matchup. I thought Romo was so right. Like at some point, you got to change what you do by quarter. Like they're going to play Dean Peace this week. Dean Peace is what we call in the NFL a spin the dial coordinator. Meaning on third down, he's changing what he calls every single time. 
Like, he's never given you the same look two third downs in a row. Whereas what happened in that game, the Chiefs knew almost every single call, and they won every matchup. I mean, so it really became down to we got Durant, we got Stephon Curry, and we got Clay Thompson. And so who are you going to double, right? So say Tyreek Hill, Stephon Curry, we'll take him out, and then we're going to double Durant. Okay, that's going to leave Clay Thompson, and he's knocking down seven threes. You lost. Now, you want to play zone against it, you're going to play a slow death. I think the whole game was lost. It was a seven-on-seven football game. The quarterback, I mean, Mahomes rarely got touched. There was no physicality to the game whatsoever. And if you're going to beat Kansas City in Kansas City, you better come heavy or don't come at all. Yes. <laughs> well, so you think part of this, Mike, it, it, how much of this is on Romeo Cornell? I mean, for God love me, 72 years old, still out there, looks great, the defensive coordinator. Do you think it was the, the defense he was designing or he just didn't have the horses? I think he didn't have the horses up front. And people said, well, they really miss Clowney. Stop, please. Clowney's on fucking Seattle's team and they couldn't get off the field on third down. Stop. That's enough, please. Like, just watch the tape. I mean, Clowney will make two or three plays. He's a good player. But he wasn't, you know, they don't miss him. Seattle can't get pressure. You know, it's funny. People always criticize, oh, they really miss him, you know. That's like Barbershop. You know, Barbershop's a Yankee fan, right? So the Yankees would trade away, you know, two prospects for for a really good hitter. And, of course, Barbershop would follow those prospects. Look, that guy's hitting 345 in AAA. Yeah, but daddy's in AAA. It don't fucking matter. Like, seriously. Like, Seattle won 11 games, but Clowney's hurt again, and he's not helping their pass rush. Like, they need a pass rush, and they got Clowney. Right? So it's the same thing. Houston, I mean, Rack's gun didn't have enough bullets in it. And Rack decided to go man-to-man. He decided to play $50 blackjack. And he was up early. He was up early on $50. Not because he was playing good blackjack, just because the dealer was getting shitty hand. But once the dealer started getting good hands, his $50 or $100 blackjack game he was playing, he got in the hole quick. No doubt about it. And the reborn Houston franchise is now 0-4 in the divisional round. They've never won a road playoff game. And that's why people are just hammering Billy O'Brien today after that loss. Coming up next, Mike and I now talk NFC divisional games. Close game at Lambeau Field as the Packers emerged victorious and the Niners took care of business against the Vikings. You like that? We sure do. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. 
And now we move to the NFC as the San Francisco 49ers win their first playoff game in six years. And it's interesting, Mike, going into the playoffs, people were asking me, okay, what do you think of the AFC? And I said, well, I'll go by the math. It's always a one or a two seed. So Baltimore KC feel pretty good to me. In the NFC, I didn't feel nearly as confident. I mean, you could have told me, aside from the Eagles, if you said, well, the Vikings are going to go run, I go, okay, I can see that. Seahawks, sure, yeah, Packers, Niners. Instead, after watching those performances, I said, okay, here's why San Francisco is who they are. Dominant defense, powerful running game. Uh, there's a reason why there are eight notice throughout the season, and they win it 27-10 against the Minnesota Vikings. Um, for Minnesota, they lacked explosive plays and big plays. And, you know, Garoppolo, his numbers are uninspiring, to say the least. 11 of 19 for 131, one pick and one touchdown. But again, it goes back to kind of what we were saying about the Dolphins and Bob Greasy. But this team is built, at least in San Francisco's case, dominant defense, powerful running game, was never a particularly close game against Minnesota as they set the tempo and took advantage. Yeah, I mean, this was a game, and I, it's funny. So I did. I came out to New York. We had a meeting. Unfortunately, you had to go to the West Coast. but And I'm driving back to Jersey. I'm driving back to Ocean City, and I'm doing the Adam Shine podcast last week. And I talk about, this is Tuesday, how much I loved I thought the 49ers would dominate the game because of their front. And by naturally, by Thursday, I'm an idiot. I talked myself back into taking Minnesota in the points, <laughs> which was stupid. You know, trust your first instincts. Like, seriously, I even read the book Blink, and I still did that. Like, so I'm my own worst enemy. But it really came down to, and I said this on VEASAN, this was really about an in-game bet game. Again, this is who's in control and who's in the lead. And from the very first minute of this game, A, you could tell Minnesota had really no chance. You know, and I got a buddy who's a Viking fan, and I had to treat him like an owner because I had a literally, he starts texting me in the first quarter, bitching about everything known to mankind, like everything. First of all, this guy, he'd have no fucking punter on his team. He's never seen a punt he's liked. He's never seen a punt he's liked. Like, I wouldn't punt there. Like, he's never <laughs> seen a punt he wouldn't he liked. Like, he would have no punter on the team. So anyway, I mean, I love him to death. I mean, he's smart as shit, and I love him to death, but he hates punters. He's just got this, I might need to go to rehab for the 76ers. He needs to go to rehab for punters because he hates every punter, right? <laughs> so anyway, he starts bitching to me, and by halftime, he's like, did, did you tune me out? I said, no, I'm treating you like a fucking owner. Like, I don't want to hear what, all your bitching. And the reality of it is, is, Minnesota, I thought they did a horrendous job, and he's right. They did a fucking horrendous job of understanding the matchup. They did a horrendous job of game planning. For them to think they were going to run the ball on the 49ers was a recipe for disaster. I get that. I get that. But early in this game, you could tell Minnesota had no chance. So I said on VEASAN, this is the best in-game betting play you could make. Because they were never, even when it was 7-7, seven to seven, you knew they weren't. And Kyle handled all of Mike Zimmer's third down stuff. They were great on third down. They converted third and 10. It didn't matter. And they couldn't block them. I mean, we said it on the pod. They couldn't block them. We said on the pod last week that in-game betting would be a player because they couldn't block them. And it was funny. I tweeted out that this is the battle for Cleveland, right? It's Stefanski and Salai. Whoever wins is going to get the Cleveland job. It's Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Here we go, right? You know? And the guy who put together a 120-yard game plan gets the job in Cleveland. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and that's why San Francisco, I mean, listen, just just be who you are, right? Robert Saleh, they knew with this defense, they talk so much about their front and the fact they can generate pressure, and it's not just four guys. It's a matter of rotating guys through there, and they will, as you said, look, look at the line play, how Baltimore was pushed around, right? Baltimore was pushed around by Tennessee. In this case, San Francisco was dictating tempo, and right out of the gate. I mean, they're 6-1 this season when they score a touchdown on their opening drive, so when that happens, they get rolling, and Tevin Coleman, he's the first niner with two or more rushing touchdowns in a playoff game since Frank Gore back in 2012. How's he a lot of Tevin Coleman talk this year, but just a solid back. Did what he needed to do, Mike. 
Yeah, no. And I mean, look, every time you turn around, they were in second and four. Like, they controlled the line of scrimmage. And Minnesota didn't have an answer. This isn't on Kurt Cousins. This isn't on, like, to me, I think if I were writing up the point of emphasis for Stefanski and Kubiak on how do we play San Francisco and how do we best play them in terms of winning, you really almost have to say to yourself, fellas, we got to play no tempo. We got to play up tempo. We've got to tire their defensive line out. We've got to play fast, get them in their stances, make them stay in their stances for 30 seconds, get them tired, keep going, put pressure on them because we got to get this game in the fourth quarter when they're not tired and we'll be able to throw the football at them. But where I would have been evaluated the game is the secondary of the Niners really shut down the receivers. They took their chances with Thielen, they doubled digs, and where's the ball going? And Cousins had no time to hold it. So we didn't have time to wait for a guy to get open. And that now comes back to Minnesota. we got to get a better right guard than Josh Klein. we got to get this offensive line better. And we're going to have to find a way to where we're always protecting the quarterback so that he can maximize his throws down the field. Look, I think the essence of the playoffs this weekend in the divisional round is the teams that had to play left-handed all lost. Right. And before we talk about the final game, which was the Packers-Seahawks, I just want to mention, you mentioned VEASAN. By the way, I always support Mike's work on VEASAN. The Kansas City Chiefs are now the favorites to win the Super Bowl. All right. They are now at 11 to 10. The Niners are next at 7 to 5, followed by the Titans 15 to 2, and the Packers actually have the worst odds now at 17 to 2. And just think about how the betting public had such little faith in the Titans. In October, Mike, they could be 401 to win the Super Bowl. They had triple digit odds entering December. And the sports book at the Borgata, which you're familiar with, they offered betting on which teams would reach the Super Bowl. The book didn't take a single bet. That include the Titans. That's incredible. It's amazing. I don't know about the points. I think it's both teams are touchdown dogs going on the road. I mean, look, the Chiefs' left hand is their right hand. They only play one way. Like, you're never forcing the Chiefs to not throw, and you're never the forcing the Chiefs to – like, they don't give a shit about the run. So if you take away the run, they really don't give a shit. In fact, you're doing them a favor. So, you know, and everybody else, if you force them to play left-handed, that's the key to the playoffs is who can force the opponent to play left-handed. And I think we saw that with Minnesota. And once you know what your left hand is, you got two choices. Mike Zimmer, John Harbaugh, you got two choices. How do we fix our left hand? Do we strengthen our right hand and say, fuck it, we can't go to the left hand? Or do we try to balance our left hand out? And I'm on Minnesota and I'm Baltimore, I probably strengthen my right hand and know that if we ever have to go to the left hand, we could be in some serious trouble. All right, the last game, Packers-Seahawks. I think if there was five more minutes in the game, Mike, the Seahawks might have won the game because they were coming on strong in that second half after Aaron Rodgers and the Packers built up a sizable lead. And Pete Carroll is still upset today because he says it looked like good. And what he's talking about is the Packers, they were feasting on Seattle's third down defense all game. And Green Bay leading by five points. The game is in the balance. The Seahawks force into the third and nine of the two-minute warning. Rodgers drops back, faces pressure from the blitz, Completes to Jimmy Graham, and that's what they call it the first down. Officials rule that Graham earned enough yards for first down, but replay review, despite additional footage and some angles showing that he looked down short, deemed the play call as it stands. And Pete Carroll quite simply looked flabbergasted. After the game, he was diplomatic. But I want to start there, Mike. Do you think that was a first down or not? I thought it was short. I thought it was a half a yard short, actually. When I first saw it from my eye, I thought it was short. And I thought from the replays it was short because the ball was between the eight and the zero. Like, the ball was in his body. So, you know, even though his head was by the line, the ball was by the 8 and the 0. So, look, that's not why they lost the game, Seattle. I mean, Seattle lost the game because they decide that, you know, if I were in Seattle, I would say to the team before the game, I would say, fellas, 
you know, look, we put ourselves in a hole here. We're down 21 to nothing. Let's come out here in this first quarter. You know, we've spotted them 21 points. Let's come out in the first quarter. Russell, you take over the game, and let's just start playing from there. You know, because when they let Russell play, they're hard to play. When they run a traditional offense, they're easy to play because they can't block anybody. I mean, God love Marshawn Lynch. I love the speech afterwards on saving money. Oh, unbelievable. But, you know, the guy's got no juice left in his legs. I mean, he and, – and obviously, Seattle's had a bunch of injuries. They missed a bunch of guys. There's no other that. But defensively, Seattle has never been good all year. They have not been good. They've given up over five yards of carry. They really haven't been able to get off the field. They changed their scheme. They can't play – the way Pete played, their defensive front really can't rush the passer with Clowney. You know, they're not dominant at the three technique. They couldn't take advantage of the Jenkins kid, the rookie right left guard, and they couldn't take advantage of, of Billy Turner, the bad left guard or the bad right guard, however it goes back and forth. I mean, if you're going to beat Green Bay, you got to put your two best players on those two shitty guards and you got to win there. And they couldn't do it. And so, you know, Seattle has nobody to blame. But, and the other thing is, Seattle got the ball 28 23. Now, I like Seattle in the game. And this is one of those games where you handicap, and you know what? When the game's over, you say to yourself, you know what? That was the right handicap, even though you lost. Even though you lost, because it came down to the two point play, shitty two point play and they didn't get it, you know, and if they get the two-point play, you're going to win. So it's that close. But with Seattle has the ball 28-23, and, you know, I know Green Bay was exhausted, and Seattle was tired too. Don't get me wrong. You know, everybody talking about how tired Green – Russell Wilson was tired at this point, right? Didn't you think he was tired in the game? Absolutely. I mean, and that's – well, here's the other part. You, I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned there, Mike, about not getting off the field. This is a critical stat. Packers converted 9 of 14 on third downs. Think about that. That's the story of the game. Nine of 14. Are you kidding me? When your defense can't get off the field, that's brutal. Right. Meanwhile, they hadn't been a good third down team the whole year. Really, that's one of their weaknesses. You know, and Seattle's secondary is bad. I mean, they can't really play very well. Their defense was bad all year. And how they were able to stay in games is a tribute to Russell Wilson. I mean, if you don't love Russell Wilson as a player, then you don't love football. I don't give a shit if you're a 49er fan, if you're a Charger fan. If you don't love watching Russell Wilson play, you just don't like football. It's just a fact. I mean, the guy's incredible. He never gives up. You want your children to be just like him. You know, he plays his ass off. He competes. Nothing deters him. That You know, like, I think if they had to do it all over again, they got a third and, what, four? And they know they're getting max pressure from Pettin. And I think at that point, they knew it was coming. They probably should have called a timeout there. That was the game because they were in two-down territory there. Naturally, he gets sacked, and now it's third and 10. Got the text from my man. I hate the punt there. That that, that was like I could have predicted that. Like I, I knew that was coming, right? You know. And so they punt there and never get the ball back. And he ends up being right, too, because they never got the ball back. But it, it, like he's right, but he's really not right because when you allow two third and 10s to get converted, it's really not because you punted. It's because you miscalculated how shitty you are on defense. Yeah, I mean, it's – there's miscalculations all over the place, and I want to go back to Packers a little bit, too, about their offense, because, again, Rodgers was great on third down, did what he needed to do, and Devontae Adams critical as well. That you know, I was going into the game, Mike, thinking Aaron Jones is going to be critical for the Packers, and instead of it being Devontae Adams, I mean, that he's like a Jordy Nelson now for Aaron Rodgers, and he ended up being a really key guy. You imagine with the Packers' offense, which was not very high scoring this year, not prolific, imagine you take Devontae Adams out of the mix, which Seattle was unable to do. He was a difference maker. Eight catches, 160 yards. Those are 
gigantic numbers. No doubt. And I mean, look, I, I said, I, I don't know why they didn't double them. And somebody said, well, they did. They had a, no, that's not a double. The guy, just because there's a free safety in the middle field, doesn't mean he's double in the slot. Like, I mean, double them, double them. I mean, inside and out, double them on the bracket. Like, you got to take him. If he goes left, I got him. If he goes right, I got him. If he goes vertical, we both got him, right? Like, we're going to double this guy inside and out. Like, there's no way. We'll play cover five against him and cheat it over, whatever they did. Like, that's the double. Like, the double has to occur so that Rodgers, what people don't understand is when the quarterback sees a player doubled, he then refocuses his eyes somewhere else. If he sees a free safety in the middle of the field that's cheating over to the double, he can throw the ball away from the free safety like a center fielder can't get to a, a ball in the, in the alley. That ain't a double, right? A double is I come to the line of scrimmage. Oh, fuck. They got him doubled. Okay, Jimmy Graham, I'm coming to you, man. Here it comes, right? Or Jeremiah Allison, I'm coming to you, right? So right away, as soon as Rodgers sees this is doubled, I'm going somewhere else immediately. And then the only way he comes back to the double is if he just absolutely just sees, like, i got to fit the ball in there and screw it. That wasn't the case on that play. He saw the free safety in the middle of the field, middle of the field close. He threw the ball away from the player above the corner who really didn't have him covered. I mean, there was, a, there was at least a yard of separation. Made a great play, great throw, great catch. Also, that's what happens. The Green Bay Packers move on. Defense improved as the season went along, and obviously that was important to them. And now we look ahead to the NFC Championship game, which we will do later this week. Of course, GM Shuffle, as always, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts twice a week as we head into the AFC-NFC Championship games, which should be fun. But by the way, still a ton more to get to. Not only LSU-Clemson taking place tonight in the College Football National Championship game, but we're also going to talk with the Cleveland Browns. Last team to fill their head coaching vacancy, they went with Vikings offensive coordinator Kevin Stefanski. Good move or not? We'll discuss it next. All right, the only team, last man standing, last of the Mohicans, Mike, only team left to hire a head coach, the Cleveland Browns hire Kevin Stefanski as their new head coach. I want to backtrack to when we did this podcast a week ago, when I said to you, what about Josh McDaniels? And your quote was, I think there's an 80% chance McDaniels doesn't even take the interview. <laughs> that's, that's how little anybody wants this job. I was kind of hoping for Jim Schwartz, love him, the Eagles defensive coordinator, but they go with Stefanski, who last season was seen as a runner-up to the job given to Freddie Kitchens, who's one of the all-time bad decisions, a one-and-done. As far as Stefanski is concerned, this is a guy who, listen, did some things with the Vikings, had a strong season. But do you think all things considered, and you know the Browns organization, wouldn't they rather have Josh McDaniels? I mean, no, because here's why. I think the Browns truly believe Jimmy and D. Haslam and J.W. and his wife, Whitney, I think they truly believe that 90% they have everything in order. They think they just need to get the right coach. And they need to get the right general manager. And I think they truly believe that analytics is the future, that analytics should have its footprint on every facet of the organization. And by every facet, I mean players, I mean coaches, I mean game plans. So, you know, when they brought all these candidates in, they gave them a, a psychological profiling test. So they wanted to know about them. They gave them that test, right? I mean, it's not rare in the business world, but it's somewhat rare in this world because, you you know, the way you know about coaches is you observe them, you talk to people, can they lead, right? So they gave that. 
you know, and they made it very clear that they wanted harmony between the general manager and the head coach. And they also made it clear that there's going to have to be time on Monday that you're going to have to meet with the ownership group. And on Friday, they're going to want to know what the game plan is. And you're going to have to present it to the analytic department so they can go through it and see how they view it. Now, this has disaster written all over it, right? But obviously, Stefanski's probably saying to himself, look, I'm a young enough guy. I believe in analytics myself, so I'll go in there and do it. But you and I both know the first bump. This job, this is a perfect example of them really not knowing what they needed in their head coach. Because what they needed was somebody strong. They needed somebody who had clout. They needed somebody who could who could control a room, who's been in Super Bowls, who can tell Beckham that this isn't right, who can tell Baker Mayfield what he needs to do. And I'm not saying it's Josh McDaniels. I'm not. I mean, for them to interview Jim Schwartz and not hire Jim Schwartz is like – like there's no comparison between Jim Schwartz and Kevin Stavitt. There's none. There's none in terms of his leadership skills, his intellectual capacity, all that stuff, right? Like there's not. And I'm not dissing on Kevin. But this was a fait accompli. This was all about what Paul DePodesto wants, who's a really smart guy in baseball, right? But again, analytics is not the only slice of the pie. And if you're not using analytics to the right way, just like I talked about earlier, if you want to call 12 personnel with Gronk and Hernandez 12, go ahead and do it. But it could be 11, right? It could be 11. You know, it might be 10. So how do you handle that? You know, I mean, they told one of the candidates that they don't think they should run the ball on first down against the Steelers. That's something an analytical person would say. Like, well, tell me why you shouldn't do that. Tell me how that goes. Like, are they? it's because they're in three buzz? Is it because the Steelers just have Stephon Truitt over there against our shitty right tackle? Like, there's more to the just the blanket statement. And that's what really drives me crazy with Twitter, and it drives me crazy. I think analytics is important. I think when you look at something and you say, hey, when you're in 11 personnel, they give up over six yards of carry. Okay, there's something there. Now what you do, you go take all the plays of their defense facing 11 personnel and you analyze how people are running the ball in their 11 against their, their defense. The tape has to match the idea. And if it doesn't, we're wasting our time here. Yeah, and that's why, speaking of wasting one's time, with Kevin Stefanski of the Browns, whether or not this is going to work out, Mike, this is the headline. Everyone's going to say, listen, okay, the analytics are great. Love Deep Podesta with the Dodgers. It's not working out in football. Bottom line is this. Can you get Baker Mayfield turned around, right? It's as simple as that. If you ask the Chicago Bears, what's your biggest issue? Can you make MVP Mitch MVP Mitch? If you look at the Cleveland Browns, you say, listen, can you make Baker Mayfield a great coach? That's going to determine Kevin Stefanski's uh, success here, right? If if he improves the defense, if they get Odell Beckham on the same page, great. But ultimately, people are going to say, hey, did Baker Mayfield go back to being the guy we thought he was going to be? Did we vindicate this decision of drafting him so high because of what Stefanski was able to do? And that's the ultimate part of this. You look at the analytics, you look at the numbers, or can you make Baker Mayfield great? Kevin Stefanski must have told him in this interview, yes, I can. I believe in him, and I can do it. I'm a great offense coordinator. Look what I did with Kirk Cousins, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if he can, but that's going to be the ultimate litmus test whether or not he's good. I don't think they said that, though, with AD. I think they said, can you, along with us, make Mayfield great? Because I think it's they think it's collaboration. I, I think they think it's a collaborative effort. I think that they want his part in the piece, but they want we can make them better. And I think they missed the biggest thing. They have a dysfunctional locker room. Like if I said to somebody, the Browns 90% solid and only 10% weak, I think it's the opposite. I think they have probably about 10% things going good, and they're 90% screwed up. Like they're analytic, all this stuff. It never comes together. And hiring Stefanski, I mean, Stefanski's two biggest mentors in football are Pat Shermer and Brad Childress. 
Now, Shermer was fired once. Like, seriously, those are his two big mentors. Right. Right? Childers with the Vikings, of course, the offense coordinator of the Eagles. You're right. That's not an inspiring name. Yeah. So, I mean, look, and let's face it. Here's the thing that was unbelievable. In the duel between Burr and Hamilton on Saturday afternoon <laughs> that we were watching to decide the Browns coach, you know, Mike Zimmer comes out and says, the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is Gary Kubiak. I mean, they quote that. They, I mean, Collinsworth says it. The greatest thing that ever happened to me was Gary Kubiak. And that's not a knock at Kevin. Like, I don't think Kevin's going to command the room. I think Kevin fits the Stefanski profile. Smart guy. Analytical guy. A thinking man's guy. Right? I get all that. But what I think Deep Podesto's doing is trying to hire a baseball manager and not a goddamn leader. He needs somebody to walk in there and say, look, Odell, I know you're compliant. I know you're here. But here's the problem, Odell. You're a little bit like Michael Jackson. Anything you say, every player follows you. So when you don't show up for OTA days, you destroy the team. I need you here. And you got to have some juice to say it. Like, great players come here. Like, Odell, I know you work out hard. I know you do things. But you got to work out and improve your route running like a wide receiver, not like you're training for the Olympics. Okay? Those are the conversations. And you got to have some juice to it. Who's going to do that? Who's going to do that? I mean, because Odell is powerful that he's going to get people to follow him. And it ain't going to be in the right direction. That's proven over time. So to me, again, I mean, I just think the Browns have settled for what they think. And again, like I ask you this question, and I said this on VEASAN this morning. All right, you're in the interview room. Who in that interview room can judge a football coach? The, the Haslam family? I don't think so. De Podesto? I don't think so. Who? Well, they say, well, Elliot might have been in that. Everybody tells me Elliot wasn't even in. In fact, I think Elliot will be gone out of that organization in the next three weeks. So, like, 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 who was in the room who's picking the coach? It would be like me going over to a hospital and say, well, I'm going to pick somebody to run the heart department here. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I wouldn't even know what questions to ask, right? So, like, how does that even work? Like, who's the expertise in the room? Somebody has to know something about the game inside and out. And they got to help you pick the coach, not take some fucking test, not run some numbers. Yeah, those are all important. I think they're all important. And, and nobody was more on psychological testing than I was. I believed it in players. I do. But God damn, it's got to be applicable. Well said. Brown's mess continues. I don't think Kevin Stefanski is going to be the savior, but best of luck to him. Last topic we want to discuss is the national championship tonight. LSU and Joe Burrow, the Heisman Trophy winner against Davo Sweeney and Clemson and Trevor Lawrence. Here's your stat of the day. Jim Miller just tweeted this out. By the way, Jim's a teammate of ours at Cadence 13. 60,687. 60,687. That's the number of beers sold at LSU's Tiger Stadium during the football team's October 26th game against Auburn. We'd like to talk about numbers, Mike. Are you taking the over or the under? 60,000 beers were sold at an LSU game earlier this year. Tonight against Clemson should be fun in New Orleans of all places. Yeah, I would take how many people will be arrested before the game. I think that's a good number. That's a good prop bet. How many people will be arrested after the game if LSU wins? That's another good prop bet. I mean, is there a better place to have a game? I mean, because here's the reality of Luton. If nobody ever has been to New Orleans or been to a, a big game, I mean, that makes it such a great place is because you can walk everywhere. You really don't need a car. You know, so it's not like when the Super Bowl's in Miami, but some people are in South Beach, some people are in Fort Lauderdale, you, you know, some people are in Miami Beach. Like, this is everybody's in the same spot, and everybody's there to have a good – and it's really fun. 
I mean, it's the perfect place. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of alcohol consumed. I don't think there'll be an oyster left in the town. I don't think there'll be a goddamn <laughs> oyster left in the town. They'll be gone. So, I mean, what a great game. What a great venue. And I can only imagine how much money. And on Sunday at VEASAN, it was the most bet game so far. I mean, there's going to be so much action on this game. It's beyond comprehension. Yeah. To echo your thoughts about the walking part of it, you're right. Uh, working with ESPN the last couple of years, I went to the Sugar Bowl, and it was amazing. You literally go from the hotel. You walk right to the Superdome. Maybe it's like a two-minute drive. You're fine. The French Quarter, everyone's getting after it. And the thing about New Orleans is they just love their football. I mean, whether it's the Saints or college football, I mean, that, that entire city, that fan base, they're so passionate about it. And in terms of tonight's game, listen, this LSU story is amazing because they went from the 69th best offense in football to the number one this year. I mean, that, that is an incredible stat. And for, as far as Clemson is concerned, I mean, they're on a 29-game win streak. Like, think about that. And Trevor Lawrence, his numbers, 6,700 yards, 66 touchdowns the last 29 games. Like, if you want offense, as you mentioned, a lot of action in this game. If you want offense, you want major players. I mean, just seeing Burrow and Lawrence go head-to-head, Travis Etienne in the mix. I mean, I'm expecting a high-scoring game, to say the least. No doubt. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, Burrow's a great quarterback, probably will be the first pick in the draft. And Lawrence will be the first pick in the draft whenever he wants to come out. And I think I would take Clemson in the points only because I think anytime a great quarterback like Lawrence or Russell Wilson and you're getting that many points, I think you should always take it because they're great for a reason and they'll keep it close. I mean, you know, Russell Wilson probably would have cashed for you if they convert the two point play. But that being said, you know, I like Clemson and the points. I, I think this. I think that this is a game that both defenses have liability, and it's going to come down to who can gain an extra possession, who can keep a possession. I think, to me, the punting is going to be like a turnover in this game because the other teams are going to move the ball. And I'm not sure field position matters the way both teams do it. And in a big game, I think you got to go with Clemson. They've got experience. Look, I'll be rooting for LSU. There's no doubt. I think Carly, my girl who passed away in the plane crash, I think she'll be watching down from heaven. I got to root for her. There's no doubt. But, you know, I take Clemson in the points. I will go Clemson as well. Davos Sweeney's a great coach. I love their defensive coordinator, Brent Venables. I think he'll get enough schemes to, listen, I don't think he can shut down Joe Burrow, maybe slow him down a little bit, disguise things a little bit, bring pressure where he's not expecting it, and who knows, I will call Clemson to win. Last thought before we say goodbye, and of course we'll be back later this week with our picks for the NFC and AFC Championship games, and you can hit us up, the GM Shuffle at gmail.com, and now available on Instagram. But my favorite moments of the weekend, Mike, Bill Cowher surprised in the CBS set, and particularly Jimmy Johnson notified while at halftime of the game yesterday that they both will be inducted in the Hall of Fame. Jimmy Johnson's reaction, Mike, that was about as good as it gets. It was so sincere, it was so genuine. You see the, the you know the other guys' reaction. By the way, we were all in the Hall of Fame: Strahan, Bradshaw, Howie Long, and the way Jimmy at first kind of goes, "Oh boy," smiles, and then he started tearing up, Mike. I don't even like the Cowboys, and I was so happy for Jimmy Johnson that moment. And as you and I have discussed in the GM Shuffle, long overdue, one of the great talent evaluators of all time. Yeah, no, I mean, he should get in there just on this GM work at Dallas. I know Jerry takes credit for it, but let's be real honest. I mean, the last 19 years this decade with Jerry being 11 games over 500 is enough evidence to put Jimmy in the Hall of Fame. And my reaction was not that I didn't think Bill Cowher belongs in it, because I think when you listen, when you follow Rick Goslin's tweets and he explains it, because Goslin does an incredible job of handling the information. If you don't follow Rick Goslin, a follow on Twitter is a good follow, and he's really subjective and he's objective with the information and he presented a case that look cower belongs in there but then i'm thinking to myself where's jimmy like i think jimmy belongs before cower that was just my instinct but then i read rick and i'm like okay i get this and then they put jimmy in i still don't understand how Corey and flores aren't in i really don't 
I really don't. I think Tom Flores winning two Super Bowls. I know Al gets a ton of credit for winning those Super Bowls, but Flores had a lot to do with it, right? I mean, having worked for Al for 10 years, I can say he should be in the Hall of Fame for managing Al. That's a tribute that he should have. So hats off to Jimmy. That'll be, it'll be, a, I, I would think Jimmy after this, you know, might just ride off in the sunset and say, you know what? I don't need to be flying to LA every week. Yeah, I think so too. I think you get to that moment, you go, hey, it's been fun. I got more than enough money. I got my Hall of Fame. I mean, he, and you know what I liked, Mike? The first, you know, the first thing he said, he goes, you think of all the assistant coaches, right? You know this. When you think about the coaches, those staffs are so critical, so many late nights, so many sacrifices, people missing their families and their wives. And he goes, that was the first thing he said. He goes, you know, I just want to thank my assistant coaches. And then they cut to that shot, Troy Aikman, who was teary eyed in the booth. I mean, that was, that was some good TV, man. No, it was really good. Oh, and by the way, I got asked to do a speech this Friday night. I got to tell you, I'm excited. I got asked to do a, a, a thing Friday night at Villa de Roma. How about that? Really? What's the speech about? I did a thing this summer. It's about the summer kids that want to be sports announcers, and I think they're having a dinner, so they asked me to come back and do like a half-hour presentation or, or like talk to them, you know? But it's at Villa de Roma. Like, how could I turn that down? Like, to go to Villa de Roma? <laughs> that's, Seriously. That's amazing. What is this happening? We need to get like a live GM Shuffle studio audience. I'm going to, oh, I'll be tweeting pictures. Yeah, I think it's Friday night. I have to do it. Like, it's like a half hour or something. So I'll, I'll go up and do it. But I mean, I mean I've mean, i been to Villa de Roma, but now it has takes on way more meaning to me now. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, last thought, make sure you check out Cinephile uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, reaction to the Academy Award nominations. Oscar nominations came up today. The great news, Mike, is this. Ten nominations to The Irishman. Best Picture, Best Director, Martin Scorsese, Best Supporting Actor, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci. Solidarity! Solidarity! You know, you're in here for extortion. I'm in here for fraud. That's why. That, that, that scene is like, and he's eating that ice cream. It's so good. But I, th- I, I tell you what, as good as Al, I thought Al was great. I think Pesci's incredible. I, th- I mean, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. I, I don't know how these people vote on stuff. I mean, I watch the Golden Globes. I don't know how people vote. But, I mean, I could. there's certain scenes in that movie that are just resonate to me perfectly. Although I did, somebody sent me a, a direct message, a friend of mine who lives in Arizona, and apparently Sammy the Bull lives out in Arizona. Oh, Gravano. Yeah, and he's not in the witness protection program anymore. He's like saying, screw it, I'm out. You want me? Come get me. You know, come heavier, don't come at all, right? And he was giving him all the things that are wrong about the Irishman, so I can't wait to kind of fill that in and see where we go. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, if he's got the inside juice, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. And last thought, too, Knives Out was nominated for Best Original Screenplay today, Ryan Johnson. As a writer yourself, Mike, a guy who loves a great script, big ensemble cast, Agatha Christie who done it. What did you think of the movie? I love Michael Shannon. You know, uh, you know, Michael Shannon was great. At, I thought Millie and I watched it. It was good. I mean, are we both like a whodunit type of thing. I thought Daniel Craig was interesting in it. He's got like a... A funky southern accent. Yeah, I, I didn't like the yeah, accent. Like it, I thought the accent was kind of weird. I'll be honest. Like there, there's a perfect example. Like he might have been the Baltimore Ravens. Like I thought he was good, but it didn't fit him. Right? <laughs> yes. You know exactly. that's the best way to close the podcast. It it was like an actor playing a role that didn't fit you. <laughs> that's the Baltimore Ravens. Good actor, bad accent. We'll see you next time on the GM Shuffle. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.